We're going to step now into the next section of our series. We're going to take a shift from the covenants that we've been walking through. We, we took a strong focus or a, a, a deeper focus on the new covenant than we did the previous one. But from that now, we're going to turn to uh, the next section of that series. We began looking at God creating. We looked at God's covenants. And now we're going to look at God's commands. So, so if you put this together and think of it in these terms, we've been working through foundational pieces. Right? We've been, been essentially building a, a foundation of biblical doctrine that flows from start to finish, what God has been about doing. And over and over I've said, my desire in this is to strengthen us as a church that we're not blown around by all the trials of the world uh, or the trials we face in our individual lives, that we're learning to really trust the Lord, to entrust ourselves to Him fully, to, vote, to devote our lives to Him fully, and to uh, live in obedience to his authority fully, knowing that we're always going to need grace because even our best works in this life, even our best works are shot through with the need for that. So, so now, after we've built that foundation, the question is, well, what do we do? As the new covenant people of God, what do we do, right? That's the, that's the idea, and, and that's, the, that's where we're going to be focusing as we look at God's commands. In every covenant, God has provided instructions and direction, expectation for his people. Even in the covenants that are, that, that are heavily focused on, so, so let's just use Abraham as the example. God has him cut the animals, lay them out, he's going to enter into covenant, and Abraham doesn't walk through. God puts him to sleep, and God walks through the covenants, basically taking on both sides. He's going to ensure its accomplishment. He's going to ensure its fulfillment and for the failing of a failing covenant partner, he's going to take that burden upon himself. And as we see him do that with Jesus and the cross. But it didn't come without expectation because we move through that covenant and we see in Genesis 17 that he tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. There's an expectation of life, an expectation on how Abraham would live. Fast forward to Israel, and there's a very detailed explanation, a very detailed uh, law that's given. But it's interesting, and it's hard to know what would have happened had things not gone the way they did. But in the initial statement of the covenant, before they immediately break the covenant, it's a pretty simple law. In fact, there's not even curses pronounced until they get to Leviticus 26, after the covenant has been broken. If you read the covenant, when he initially speaks it, when he initially gives it and enters into covenant with Israel at Sinai, he says, these are the blessings for obeying the covenant. They break the covenant within about 40 days. I don't know exactly when. I don't know how long it takes to build a golden calf. And so I don't know when they said, but by 40 days, Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. And by that time, they had broken the covenant and they'd called Aaron to build a golden calf. In the next statement of the covenant, as the law then is broken out, God pronounces both blessings and curses in Leviticus 26. It's the first time the curses are pronounced for that covenant. They weren't necessary before. But as soon as they broke the covenant, God says, this is the curse, right? And so anyway, but they had a specific set of laws to follow, a specific set of commands that would guard their lives, their daily living as individuals. It, it would shape them as a kingdom of priests and, and as a holy nation uh, representing God to the world around them. And, and it, 
effectively, he wanted them to do the very thing that I think in the new covenant we're called to do, to entrust themselves to his power, to live obediently to his authority and to devote themselves to his glory. And here, here's, here's the problem that we're at today as we seek to answer what do we do. There's not a lot of agreement. Uh, let me say that. There's a lot of agreement, but there's also, there's also strong opinions about how much of that law we're to bring into the new covenant. Strong disagreement about the, the role of that law in the new covenant. But here's what we can all agree on. Obedience to God is the standard. What do we obey? So before we jump into the text, before we begin to build this out, I, I want to, and before we totally move away for, from the covenants, I want to I do something that's a little bit different. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to build a grid for you for us to think through and, and help you see why I'm coming from and teaching from the perspective I'll teach from, but also the reality of why it's so important to do what we did before coming to the law. Like if we try to make a decision about what view the law we're going to have without doing the work we've done, a blind, blind squirrel will find a nut every now and then. You've heard that saying, right? But, but most often we're going to find inconsistency and we're not going to, we're not going to be, be, be holding uh, positions that are biblically faithful or consistent. So there's three major categories of the covenants that then give way to how people approach the law. Three major categories. There's covenantal continuity. I think that's on this side of the screen behind me. Covenantal continuity, covenantal discontinuity, and then covenantal continuity and discontinuity, that there's a recognition that there's both in the new covenant. There's covenant continuity to the old covenant and continuity, discontinuity to the, 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 the previous covenants. And so there's this position in the middle um, that seems to recognize a measure of both. And historically, uh, as Reformed churches, have, as Protestant churches have gathered, they've all been shaped in some way by one of these three camps. Continuity, discontinuity, or a, a measure of both. So let's walk through that. In the continuity camp, I'm going to start over here on, I think it's on your right side of the screen. I'm not, that's not political, right? Don't, don't get that idea. It's not about politics because there's all kinds of Reformed paedo-baptists. That's the first category that are liberal in their politics. But there's a Reformed paedo-baptist view that emphasizes continuity of biblical covenants. In fact, it's such a strong continuity of the biblical covenants that that's how they come to baptizing babies. Because they connect all of these covenants. So there's the, the covenant of works is what they call it. That's the covenant with Adam. There's covenant of works. And then there's the covenant of grace that starts at Noah and extends all the way to Jesus. And they say this is different administrations of the same covenant of grace. And so that's why as they look at the old covenant, they say, oh, there's lots of stuff there that we need to be using here. But as it comes to circumcision, that's been replaced by baptism. And so we baptize our babies as opposed to circumcising our babies. Okay, So they're seeking to be biblically faithful to a continuous covenant of grace. And there's a couple of different camps. The major ones today, there's all kinds of different flavors in each of these sections. 
But there are different, different camps. The two major ones today are traditional. That's the Lilligan Duncans, the R.C. Sproles, the Sinclair Fergusons, the Kevin DeYoungs. I mean, there's a whole list of them. You will know many of those names. And then there's the theonomists, the, the, the theonomic view of continuity. That's the Greg Bronsons, the, or Bonsons. The, uh, it really it started around the 90s is when it really became strong. And uh, Rush Dooney, um, Gary North, there's several that really did a lot of writing. Ger- Greg Bonson's probably the guy that's the most prolific writer. But in recent days, the person you will have heard of is Doug Wilson, most likely. Um, he is in this camp. And so even inside of that, we're not going to go into it deeply, but even inside of that Reformed Pado-Baptist view, there is oftentimes strong disagreement between the traditional and the theonomy people, uh, which, I mean, shouldn't be surprised to any of us because when is there not strong disagreement but, but between us, right? We're always struggling to come to a place of, of agreement. So, so then let's go to the other side. So there's the discontinuity side. This is the dispensationalists. They, they, will, they will not ignore the covenants, but they put a, a lesser emphasis on the covenants and a sharp distinction between the old and the new covenants. And then inside of that, there's a couple of different camps, the classic and the progressive. And again, there's oftentimes strong disagreement between those camps. The classic really emphasize the distinction. They really strongly emphasize how different Israel and the church are uh, and, and oftentimes will not minimize the value of the Old Testament scripture, but that's not where their focus often is. Uh, the progressive covenantalists will recognize the distinction between Israel and the church, but they recognize that in eternity we will become one new man, where in the, the discontinuity side, uh, or the classic side, oftentimes they're pointing out that there's two distinct peoples uh, eternally. Uh, anyway, so there's, this, there, there's the extreme positions in each of those camps, right? There's the extreme positions in each camp, and even if theonomy, uh, let's, let, I, I would suggest it goes the farthest out to, to that side, and, and classic uh, covenant or classic dispensationalist goes out, there's still people who are members of the body of Christ. I want you to hear me say this. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Now, there's things that I would disagree with them on, but we're going to stand before the Lord together one day, and so we need to be recognizing that. So then we, we press in towards the middle, and around 1644 was the first writing of a Baptist doctrine or a Baptist confession, um, Reformed Baptist, all the way back to at least 1644, probably earlier than that, but that's the first time we have a a group of churches actually write a confession. They, they covenant, they, they recognize, the Reformed Baptists will recognize that covenants serve as a backbone of the biblical story, but there are going to be distinctions between each covenant, much like we've been talking about all the way through, trying to emphasize both the continuity and the discontinuity between each of these covenants. They are not the same covenant under different administrations, I don't believe, as the Bible shows it. And we do emphasize that there is a covenant of grace, but it doesn't start at Noah. It's always been the new covenant through which God has saved people all the way back to Adam and will save people till the day he returns under the new covenant. Every other covenant is on its own. Under that, the big camps today, the biggest camps today, and these are, these are new names, but they're not new 
positions. 1689 federalism, uh, people like Sam Waldron, R- Richard Barcelos, they are lesser known, but you can find them, uh, Founders Ministry, um, I'm trying to think of the, uh, there's a couple of smaller seminaries, Reformed Baptist Seminary, uh, that, that, are, that, that are emphasizing this perspective. And what they're seeking to do is go back to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession and draw out what Reformed Baptists have confessionally been since that time. Uh, but then there's progressive covenantalism. Now, this is who I've always been. I just didn't have a name for it until about five or six years ago. I've wrestled with all these other positions. I've looked at them deeply, I've, but, but not been able to... I just don't believe the Bible to be teaching these other positions. Um, but about five or six years ago, I came across Stephen Wellam uh, and Peter Gentry's book, Kingdom Through Covenant, um, and, and I think with, I just think, it, it, to me, it makes the best sense um, as we're seeking to be consistent across the board. Uh, but anyway, so, so inside of this, the, the idea is, 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 here's where we're at. Let me just, let me just stop labeling and defining. Let me just tell you why I think this matters. Because as a church that's distinctively Baptist, I don't mean Baptist in the sense that we belong to a denomination. I mean Baptist in the sense that's regenerate church membership, right? We all, as members, we're having a covenant member meeting. We expect that when the covenant member meeting happens, that is a group of regenerate, saved people who are being transformed by God this meeting this morning is public. We would open it to anybody. We air it for anybody to watch and make comment on. It is nothing secretive or behind the scenes. This is not necessarily representative of the church, but in our members' meeting, we're going to specify regenerate church membership. So when you join our church, we ask two questions What is the gospel? Because you have to be able to define the gospel if you're going to believe the gospel. And when did you begin to believe the gospel? Because at some point in your life, you had to begin believing it. Even if it's a process of time, you had to have begun to believe it if you've really been saved. So we ask those two questions. We talk through those things because of that. So convictionally, we are a Baptist church. And so that, it, it makes it very difficult to step into the Reformed Pado baptist perspective uh, because... Well, Baptists recognize the distinction between the covenants. Just, it's impossible to really, to, to really bring those. They're, they're too different. And then the farther you go into that camp, the farther out it goes because of the treatments, uh, the, the, the ways that that, that, that uh, works out further down the line as far as like doctrinal positions and how much of the law we adhere to or what we teach about the law or things like that. But on the other side is a church that teaches from and encourages its members to recognize the continuity of the covenants because we are Reformed Baptists, at least doctrinally and positionally. You may not fully agree with me. I know that there's some that have sat in, under this, in this church for a long time and held the identity of dispensationalists, and that's fine. We're not demanding this. It's just a position we've always taught from. But we can't go into this place that then begins to deny that there's a continuity. We can't one, one Sunday say, hey, there's a continuity, and next Sunday say, no, 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 there's no continuity. That, that, what, how does that help anybody, right? So this, this is who we've been. So, so even though we don't require that of our members, teaching perspectives are always going to kind of fall in this place. 
And there are Baptistic believers who are dispensationalists. That's, there's, it's a very normal thing. Many of them are actually Arminian. Uh, many of them uh, would be independent, would be uh, fundamentalists, things like that. That's not us because we're not, we don't lean into those things. We don't lean into the, 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 the disconnect. We lean into the continuity. That's a completely normal thing. The further you move into that extreme, you run into problems. I mean, John MacArthur is a solid Bible teacher. I, I, I listen to and read from him often. Most past books of the Bible that I've preached through, I have read his commentary on if he has one. I've listened to his sermons, right? I've been informed and influenced by him. I don't think there's a, 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 an unhealthy level of dispensational in the, dispensationalism in the way he teaches. But the Andy Stanleys of the world, who dispensationalists may not actually want to claim, but he emphasizes the discontinuity so much so that he wrote a book a few years ago that he's emphasizing the diso- that, that the Ten Commandments have no place in the Christian's life, that to prove his point, he says, let me prove my point, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments, right? It undermines the validity that they are still Scripture. Or later he says, and I don't remember if it's in the book or if it was a comment that he was talking with someone, that he, uh, that he says we must unhitch the Old Testament. As New Testament believers, we must hitch, unhitch the Old Testament from our lives. That is dangerous. But on the other end of that spectrum, we, we, we wrestle with the same kind of extremes. That, that now it's not just... So, so in these extremes, it goes to a place, if you go far enough, that it's not just the law and the instruction, but the consequence. In fact, if you read the early theonomists, and even now some of the modern theonomists, if you read them, they aren't just calling for the reality that we're supposed to teach our sons to obey, but we're also supposed to exercise the consequence. So what do you do with a disobedient son? You know what the law tells you to do in the Old Testament? Disobedient sons, disobedient daughters, I'd listen up. Because this is what the Old Covenant would have you do, have your parents do. If you continue to disobey, take them to the elders at the gate and have the elders stone them. Is that where we're going to go? Right? But that's where much of that movement has gone. That's some of the risk and the danger that comes with that, that perspective. Now, it's not all that far out. It's not, all there, they, it's not every Andy Stanley. It's not every... Uh, uh, Rush Dooney, it's, it's not every one of them are this, right? But we have these, if, for lack of a better illustration, I don't really like this one, but, but for lack of a better illustration, we have these two ditches, and we don't want to be in those ditches because error is clear. It, it becomes fundamental. But we also don't want to hold one doctrine about the law and one doctrine about the covenants because at the end of the day, you will be forced to deal with the inconsistencies. You can't hold a... a, a, a a, a, um, a theonomous view at the same time of holding a Reformed Baptist covenant theology. Because if you're really over to the old covenant and you're taking on the whole law, except for the sacrificial portions of it, except for the ceremonial law, then why aren't you baptizing your babies? You can't, you can't consistently answer that question without a bunch of 
bunch of gymnastics, a bunch of hermeneutical gymnastics. And so what I'm going to do as we work through this, a long way to get here, and I'm sorry for that, but I think it's vital that you see it because these things are at work around us all the time. What I'm going to do is seek to present to you something that falls between those camps in a Reformed Baptist perspective that fits inside of 1689 progressive, or 1689 federalism and progressive covenantalism. Under 1689 federalism, they do, like, some of our, like many of our Reformed brothers, uh, Reformed paedo-Baptist brothers, they do recognize a tripartite division of the law, moral, civil, ceremonial. Now, they're imposing that on the Scripture. The Scripture never says this is a moral law, this is a civil law, this is a ceremonial law. In fact, I would suggest as they were given to Israel, they were all moral laws. Because if they broke any one of them, what was the consequence? Curse. So who are we now to say, oh, there's a moral ceremony of civil? That's not how they were given. In addition, there's disagreement about where to break them. Is the Ten Commandments the break? Is, is that the moral law? Is, 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 is it supposed to be some moral, some civil? Like those are the questions that, that are very difficult to answer. I think you have to impose those things upon the Scripture. That's why I don't stand there. But it is a position that you can hold consistently in Reformed Baptist doctrine of the covenants and not be going off in places. And, and there's, there's ways that you get there. There's ways that you hold it that are consistent with this con, con, continuous and discontinuity, continuity and discontinuity view. And then finally, the progressive covenantalism. There's no tripart division. There's no division of the law. It's a unit. Now, when we view the Scripture through Christ, because He's the fulfillment of all that God has been doing, He's the fulfillment. Now we, we look to the Old Testament, not as a law to live by, but Christian Scripture that's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, equipping for righteousness, or for all good works. Training in righteousness. Equipping for every good work. Jason Derut, I don't know how to say this guy's name exactly. Derucci is how I've been saying it in my head. But anyway, he may never listen to this and call me up and, and say you said it wrong. But anyway, so, so he has written a, a bunch on this. He's got a forthcoming book. And, and he, I think, summarizes this position well. We access and apply Moses' law only through Christ and in view of the apostles' teaching which together ground and sustain the church. And because that's where I stand, that's where I'm going to spend most of my time, um, I'm going to encourage you to consider. But these, the, the other 1689 federalism is easily consistent with what we've taught to this point uh, on the covenants. But in each of these systems... In each of these systems, in each of these categories, what inevitably happens is once a, a, an opinion is formed, it affects how they, how, how they approach the law and what they're to do with it. <clears throat> but this quote from Derucci, it, it seems to me that this is how the New Testament best normally, most normally handles the law. Jesus himself most normally speaks of the law. The church itself demonstrated it in the book of Acts. The author of Hebrews sought to remain consistent with the continuity and discontinuity from old to new, but recognized the newness of the new covenant, clearly stated the newness of the new covenant and distinction from what came before, and recognized that as, as it says, as, as the author wrote in Hebrews, 
with the change in priesthood, Jesus being, not, not the order of priests that came under the Old Covenant, but being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, with a change of priesthood comes a change of law. That's Hebrews 7.12 if you want to go look it up. But the next three weeks and the remainder of my time today, today and the next two weeks, actually, that's what we're going to seek to build out biblically because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see it in the Scripture. So Matthew 22, 34 through 40, we'll we, we get a, a, an introduction. Um, it probably doesn't feel brief already, but it is going to be a brief introduction. The next two weeks is going to be, build it out even further. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. These, here we go. So let's read it, and then I'll pray. Seek God's blessing on our time. The Scripture says, But when the Pharisees heard that that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Father, would you please guard me in my words, that, I'm not, that I wouldn't impose my opinions, but that we would see the truth of your word on display. And, and as I seek to teach, Father, your spirit would, would do even more. Transform. In, enliven. Give us an, a clearer understanding, a knowledge and a heart of wisdom that truly knows and understands what we've been given in Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. So here's, here's Jesus, right? So he's, he's entered into Jerusalem. The, the, he's been received as the king. He goes right into the temple. And they, they immediately attack him because what he's teaching is so in contrast or in conflict to what Jews and Judaism has become and has been doing. So they seek to trip him up. They seek to catch him in some conflict or some, some uh, um, competing ideas like uh, that one day you said this and the next day you said that. There's inconsistency with you. And so, so they start sending, the, the religious leaders start sending in their servants first. The people that, they send in some people that represent them, right? And this, they go in and they ask some questions and Jesus answers and they don't know how to answer back. And then they say, okay, well, you, you guys dropped that ball, but, but we're going to go in and get the job done. So the Sadducees, first, a denominational perspective, similar to what we kind of went through already, a perspective uh, of Judaism that there's not going to be a, re- a resurrection. This group comes in and they, they question him. And Jesus silences them, it tells us in this passage. Once the Pharisees saw that he silenced the, Pharise- uh, the Sadducees, oh, well, our servants didn't do it, and guess what? You didn't have enough in you to get it done either. We're going to take this on. So an expert of the law, someone who studied the law, somebody, a Pharisee who, who's spent their life, not a lawyer fighting in court to sue people and things like that, a person whose life and livelihood was given to the study of the law, comes, I got this question. This is going to get him. I've heard his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. I've heard what he's had to say about the law. This is going to turn the people against him. Hey, Jesus, hey, what is the greatest 
commandment. Now, I don't know what the guy was expecting to hear. Now, what Jesus has done to this point is ask questions in return. Turn the, turn the question back on the person who asks it, right? So maybe he thinks, oh, we're going to enter into a debate, but I'm ready for him. I, I've got him. And what does Jesus do? He answers him directly. He tells him exactly what the greatest commandment is. And he adds a bonus. Hey, and the second greatest commandment is this. But he also silences the lawyer. I think it likely surprised the lawyer. And it probably should surprise us, especially who lean so heavily into the Ten Commandments as the moral law and the pinnacle of God's morality that he didn't point there. Why didn't he call out the first commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Well, kind of he did. Kind of he said that, right? Like to love the Lord your God. Oh, but it's really different. There's something much deeper he's calling us to when he calls us to love the Lord our God with our whole might. He's not calling us just to simply put something on. He's calling us to express something from within. Think about this. You, you, keep, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to be your God. No other gods. You can't have any idols. Okay, that's, a, that's an instruction I can follow. But how in the world are we going to accomplish this? To love him fully. Get that done. Do it. Right? Like that's what he's putting in front of this. And he says, hey, by the way, by the way, love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. Why didn't he just go to the second half of the Ten Commandments? Say, oh, no adultery, no stealing, no more. Why didn't he just go there? Because the weightier things of the law are not just the instruction of things to do, but the motive with which they are done. Get it done. It's interesting because he draws from two places that are, that are distinctly different in the law. He draws from Deuteronomy 6.5 and he draws from Leviticus 19.18. He doesn't go to the place where we would suggest in New Covenant perspective or, or, or New Testament times where we would suggest that's the pinnacle of the moral law. He doesn't go there. He lands right smack in places that people argue whether it's moral Civil or ceremonial. Now you go read them. Deuteronomy 6.5, there's a telling of the Ten Commandments. And then after that, you go look this up. After that, there's an expression of, of this. And that's where, he, where, where they were originally called to love. Because they could not obey those Ten Commandments if they didn't first love him. Truth be told, when you go to Leviticus 19.18, it's the same kind of thing. There's an expression of all the things that we're supposed to be doing for one another but we'll never be able to accomplish if we don't first love one another. He silenced. But Jesus says, the whole of the law and prophets, everything that's come before me, hangs on this. Is, is an expression of this. Not just, the, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the civil law, not just the moral law, which those are helpful categories like for us to understand what's happening and what part of life of, of Jewish life it would have affected us. Not that there's no value in it, 
Jesus goes to a place and points to a thing that's not just the law, but it's the prophets too. Everything about what God has been doing is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. As a, he didn't deny or reject the law, right? It's not like he rejected it completely, but he approached it differently. It's almost as if you can begin to see that Jesus himself has a continuous view of God's work in the world, but also recognizes he's about to do something radically new. As our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but not without a new covenant perspective. In both instances, Jesus demonstrates that, that, that the doing of the law was the right priority. But the, but the love that motivated the action is the emphasis, the weightier matter. It's the greater deal. It's for the love of self that we can pretend to keep God first, right? Don't we do that? I want to I I live in a culture that's, that's, that, that is accepting of Christianity, and so I'm going to pretend, I'm going to come to church, and that's what people did for generations in our country. Out of a love for self, a desire to promote business, a desire to build a life among the community, you had to go to church. But they didn't love God, many of them. They loved themselves. They didn't want to be an outcast. Now, out of a love for self, what do they do? What's the common view and perspective happening now? Out of a love for self, what do they do? Well, I don't even have to pretend to love God anymore. Just go and be myself. Do my thing. It's out of a love for self that we often treat others, seek to treat others justly and, and, and right. It's what I can get from you. It's what you can get from me. It's, it, it's not about selfless activity or selfless beneficial effort. It's about consuming one another. I need you so I can survive. But love sends us to a place where we'd even be willing to die for a person. <coughs> two greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments in my notes here I wrote have nothing to do with action. They have everything to do with action. But it's an action from a heart motivated by a love that doesn't exist in us until it's been placed in us. Right? Two, two, two other examples of Jesus doing this in the book of Matthew, holding this, holding this reality and recognition of the rightness of the Old Testament commands, but, but coming at them with a new covenant perspective. In murder and anger, Matthew 5, 21 through 22, you have heard it was said of the, those of old. You, you could almost put in there the, the old covenant, the old generations. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, oh, wait a minute. How many of you got angry this morning? Oh, man. I know. I remember being a parent of small kids, how difficult it is to get out of the house without getting angry. It's just me and Amy coming to church and I can't tell you the number of times she gets angry at me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's usually me. <laughs> yeah, that's true for good reason. Right? Like that, that's, oh my. Um, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, who have you insulted? Let's just talk about this weekend. 
Maybe you haven't talked to enough people yet to be insulting. I bet you insulted somebody this weekend. We'll be liable to the council. That's the leadership council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, drawing from this later, John is going to, to draw out this idea further, and he's going to write 1 John 3.15. You can go look it up. I don't think I put the, screen on the, or the verse on the screen. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. But I didn't kill anybody. But your attitude, your heart, wished them dead. Or at least, at least out of your way. Right? Jesus recognizing, hey, we shouldn't murder, right? He's not denying that that's a right thing. But he's saying there's a weightier matter. There's a weightier thing here. It's not just the activity of murder that we're to avoid. It's the thing that we're not doing that really demonstrates that we're failing. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're not loving the person in front of us as ourself. Lust and adultery. Matthew 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, both of them were. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Ah, yeah, that's right. Don't commit adultery, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wives, I don't want to disappoint you. But in, your, in their heart, every one of your husbands is an adulterer. Unless some supernatural thing God has protected them from. I, it, ha, it would only be by his power that they're not. But before we get too upset, wives, who have you lusted after? Maybe not in a physical sense, but desired your husband to be like that husband. Ah, I wish I had a different one. Jesus isn't denying the right thing to do. He's not denying that the right thing to do is not lust and not murder. He's denying that those are the only right thing to do or the the right thing to do simply because the law tells us to do it. He's coming at these from a New Testament perspective, a New Covenant perspective, a, a perspective that demonstrates the law of the New Covenant is distinct and different. It's a new law given to a new people. From the, from, from the old law given to the old people. As our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but not without a new covenant perspective. Repeatedly, Jesus did this through his ministry. It wasn't just a restatement or a reinterpretation. He saw it as a new law given. We see that in John chapter 13, 31 through 35. It's, it's his last night with his apostles. They're gathered with him. He's just washed their feet, and he says this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. I think I just put part of this up on the screen, but I'm gonna, let me read this to you for the context. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The glory of Christ on display, which gives glory to the Father. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Now here's the question. 
What is it that he said to the Jews that he's saying to them? Is it simply the first sentence? There's a new commandment? Or I'm sorry, not the first statement of the, uh, uh, where I'm going, you cannot come? Or a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Many interpreters think it's this, that first statement. It's hard to know because we weren't there and we can't ask the question. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Well, that sounds an awful lot, an awful lot like love your neighbor as yourself. He's understanding his teaching to be a new law for a new people, it seems, in the Scripture. He recognizes the value. He doesn't deny the value. He doesn't deny the rightness and the holiness of God represented in the old covenant law. But he's teaching something new. This new law comes up virtually every New Testament Letter, 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And if you go to 1 Peter and you look at the context around that verse, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the living hope, the eternal inheritance, the, the work of Christ on the cross as our sacrifice. Having purified your souls by your obedience, your submission to, your coming up under the gospel, Right? For a sincere brotherly love that it draws us together, command, imperative, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So it's not just kind of haphazardly love one another, like I'll get around to that. Earnestly, eagerly, with intent, make your life about this. Love one another earnestly. 1 John 4, 19. How are we going to do that? We love because he first loved us. That this is a new work happening in a new people with a new set of instructions. We love because he first loved us. Because in Christ, God's new covenant people have been loved. They are duty bound. You are responsible. I am responsible to love you. In the same way that I seek to love myself. Doesn't always mean I'm going to agree with you. Doesn't always mean that I'm not going to say hard things to you. But at cost to myself, I'm going to love you the way you need to be loved. And here, let me, let me let you hear me say this. I would ask you to do the same thing for me. That's what we are called to. This is exactly the point Paul drives home in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except what? To love each other. doesn't mean don't borrow. Just don't be in debt right, to them. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves, another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The idea he's presenting is you don't need a long list of things you shouldn't do if you would just give yourself to loving one another. 
You cannot love one another and commit adultery against one another. You cannot love one another and steal from one another. There is no way these two things exist in separate realities. We don't need the former list because we have the God of love who has loved us first and enabled us to love one another. And that's what we're to give ourselves to. We complicate this, though. Like, we started at the beginning, and I had all these things across the screen, and I can tell you that's a flyby of about 100,000 feet. The, the disagreements and the infighting and the finger-pointing and the shaming and all, all of the stuff that goes with us disagreeing inside the body of Christ. All of that's happening among those groups. Every one of those groups, none is innocent. But it's really so simple. How can I possibly sin against you if I am loving you? How will I sin against God if I really love him more than anything else? In fact, the way Jesus ties them together, you can't do one without the other. You can't love God if you are not loving the people around you. And you can't love the people around you if you haven't first loved God who has made you able to do both. But John complements this with a perspective on the other side about what love looks like in positive action. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed in truth. Love moves us to, to care for one another, to, to treat one another with dignity and, and, and see one another in hard places and say, you know what? I would hate being there. Let me help that person in their time of need. It's not just a not doing things. It's a moving us towards one another. It's not just a, a particular way not to treat one another. It's a particular way in which we do treat one another. But let's not just say it. Words are empty until... Until deeds are applied. Tell me all day you love me, but I will believe it when you show me. I'm guessing you feel the same way. The law, the new covenant people are bound to this. This is the whole teaching of the New Testament. This is not something we get to choose to do. This is something we're commanded to do as members, as a people of the new covenant. As our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but not without a new Testament, new covenant perspective. And we've seen that that was the teaching that came from him and, and then into his apostles and church leaders that, that the, laid the foundation for the church. They didn't return to Moses and draw from that. They looked at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. They saw the Old Testament, the value of the Scripture that trains for righteousness and equips for every good work. They didn't ignore it. They didn't deny that it was there. They didn't disconnect it from the New Testament. But they didn't run back to it. In fact, the whole letter of Galatians is a, is a, is a, a statement against people running back to it. <laughs> Why would we continue to? Even Jesus himself at the end of the book of Matthew, after, after all has done, all has happened, he has died, he has resurrected, he says to his apostles that are standing there and whoever happened to be in that, part, in that group at that time, says to them, go make disciples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a new baptism even. A lot of these people were Jews who had been baptized in some way at some point. Some of them baptized by John the Baptist. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them, teaching them to obey. Obey what? He had the Old Testament scripture. Obey the law. Is that what he said? No. Obey all that I have commanded you. He spoke about the law regularly. Now this is a conjecture. But if he really wanted us to obey Moses, wouldn't he have sent us to Moses? Wouldn't he have sent his apostles to Moses? And if they thought in some way his commands, what I have commanded you, was connected to Moses, when when the Gentiles began to be saved and and the church began to spread into the Gentile world, wouldn't they have said, hey, Jesus gave us the law. Let's just go back to Moses and let's just tell him, get circumcised, observe the food laws, listen to the holiday, do all these things. Isn't that what they'd have done? That's not what they did, is it? In Acts 15, they call a council and they wrestle. They strive together, seeking to understand what Jesus had taught them so that they didn't just point people to Moses in a way that was harmful and hurtful and bound them in slavery. But then as the New Testament ethic continues to work itself out and the church continues to grow and the Holy Spirit has his way among the apostles who are writing and teaching and training, We see. We see, the, we see the ethic developed. Love God, love neighbor. Over and over and over again. Love God with your whole being. It demands devotion to God, entrusting oneself to his power, obedience to his authority, everything about me, about you being devoted to him. And I felt that every day. How you doing? In Christ, you are completely innocent. Love your neighbor as yourself. Active, sacrificial, beneficial effort for someone based not on what they deserve from you, but on what God has done in you. Boy, I felt that every day. How are you doing? In Christ. You're completely innocent. Of all people, why would Christians want to be a people who give a law to live by when only Christ can do it? Let's not repeat the same mistake of the Jewish people who who Jesus confronted because of their misuse of the Scriptures. John 5, 39 through 40, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Wait, aren't we about eternal life? Yes. But where does that life come from? And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What had just happened is Jesus had just just healed someone on the Sabbath. And now they're all upset because Jesus has just broke the law. And puts them in the place. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, that you're justified by them, that they make you righteous, that they do something for you, that they accomplish something on you. 
they bear witness about me. As our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but not without a new covenant perspective. He gave us a new law given by a new priesthood of the new covenant for the new covenant people. Doesn't deny the wisdom of the old covenant. Doesn't ignore the scripture uh, that, that is God-breathed, that is useful today. But he gave us this new law from the new priesthood of the new covenant uh, for a new covenant people, preparing us to live in a new heavens and new earth. You go back to the garden. How many laws did they have? There's only one prohibition, but there was actually at least three given. Rule and subdue, be fruitful and multiply, don't eat. God is preparing a place for us in which we will live, in which there will be no need for prohibitions, because we will be glorified, and we will love him fully, and we will love one another perfectly. New covenant people aren't meant to be ruled by law. We can learn from it. Give us some direction. Give us some boundaries to live within. Help us to understand these commandments. That this is the heart of the law we're to live by. Love doesn't prohibit us. Prohibit us. It motivates us in every way to keep God first, to live as a blessing to one another. And when we live like this, we no longer need to be told what we shouldn't be doing. So when we see people acting in sexual immorality, can we, can we define sexual immorality according to the Old Testament scriptures? Absolutely. But is it our desire to run out into the street and grab a stone and start pelting people? Is that your desire? I bet I could have stoned you for something. Aren't you glad Jesus saved you instead? Somebody told you the gospel so that you could believe it, so that you could be saved. Children, I called your attention earlier because, hey, under the old covenant, we could have stoned you. Praise God. Praise God. That's not what we do with our children in the new covenant. We raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, pointing them always to Jesus and his salvation. When you seek to lead people to live holy lives, you don't start with the law. You lead them to Jesus. You make them disciples of Jesus. You show them him. And you treat them like Jesus treated you. In Christ, even your failures aren't held against you. But you are still responsible to strive, to pursue, to do this thing. Let's pray.